you mentioned kind of what we're built to do. And I think one thing yeah. that I see as a kind of win for utilitarianism is recognizing that the moral situation we're in as middle-class members of rich countries in the t- early 21st century, is just radically different than the moral situation that we're built for or used to, um, or we would regard as kind of normal. So kind of as a thought experiment, just think about like, what would a utilitarian say about what someone in the poorest 2 billion people in the world who are living on less than a few dollars per day, you know, what's their kind of moral recommendation for those people, which is actually much more like the normal situation for humans. And it's like pretty common sensey. It's like work hard, take care of your family, um, be a good person, don't steal, don't cheat. Um, You know, if you're like engaged, you know, by some community thing and you're going to work hard at that, like do that too. It's like actually really not that uncommonsensical. It gets weird when we're talking about you or I, but we're in an incredibly weird position. We're like aristocracy. Yeah, yeah. We're the richest few percent of the world's population. Hi, I'm Dr. Devin Sanchez Curry, and you're listening to Dialogues, Meditations, and Analyses, a companion podcast for the Problems of Philosophy course I teach at West Virginia University. just heard the ethicist Will McCaskill discussing utilitarianism, the view that being moral requires maximizing the good consequences of one's actions. In other words, utilitarians promote effective altruism. They don't just believe in doing good deeds. They believe in using the best available evidence to make sure that their deeds do the most good for the most people. Indeed, effective altruism has come to be the name for an increasingly popular social movement based on utilitarian philosophy that seeks to motivate people to redirect most of their wealth to charity and to make sure to pick the most effective charities to give to. McCaskill is a leading figure in the effective altruism movement. He's most notorious for arguing that well-educated people, everybody listening to this podcast, for instance, should do their best to secure extremely well-paying jobs. You should become a banker on Wall Street or a lobbyist for big oil after you graduate college, even if those jobs are themselves of questionable moral worth. Why? In order to live on a shoestring budget and give most of your high salary to charity and thereby do the greatest good, of course. After all, if you don't take that job, then somebody else will. And that person is unlikely to use the job to give hundreds of thousands of dollars to charity. This week's primary reading is the foundational text of the effective altruism movement, Peter Singer's Famine, Affluence, and Morality. You'll also be reading an excerpt from Bernard Williams' influential criticism of utilitarianism. To break down Singer and Williams' central arguments, I'm joined by two returning guests. Dr. Justin Bernstein, and Dr. Lindsay Fiorelli. Let's jump right in. Here's some notes on the reading, yep. I said notes on the reading. I'll start with a thought experiment that Peter Singer introduces in this article that's very influential. So imagine that you come to a, a pond. There's a child drowning in the pond. It's not your child. It's a stranger's child. There's nobody else around. And you are wearing a nice suit. 
And so you have a choice. You can either ruin your suit um, and save the child, or you can let the child drown. Now, Singer thinks it's really obvious that you should ruin your suit. Um, You should dive into the pond, ruin your suit, save the child's life. And he thinks that readers will find that obvious, too. Seems pretty plausible to me. <laughs> yeah, no, no objections so far. Well, no objections I mean... so far. I mean, he has a funny little bit where he's like, well, if you don't agree with this point, I mean, he, he makes it a more general claim. He's like, but if you don't agree with this, then I'm not going to try to convince you. Don't bother reading further. Like, he thinks it's very, very obvious that this is, this is the right intuition to have, that you should dive into the pond, even though it'll ruin your nice suit. He's making a big assumption here about the suit itself. You know, I don't even if, actually you know what was funny is I don't even know that he mentions a suit oh. in the paper, but this is the way everybody always talks about it now. This is like an example that gets talked about over and over again, and people are always talking about the suit. But he does yeah. use later in the paper being well dressed as like the thing people care about that they ought not care about. Yeah. So I guess yeah, I mean I, I live in Florida, so what's being well dressed down here probably isn't a suit. The suits uh, they're suits, they're just white suits. I was gonna say white linen suits. <laughs> yeah. White linen suits. Yeah. Okay. So My yeah, people. it's some sort of suit or, you know, Hawaiian t shirt, whatever is being well You're well suited for the event. No uh, this okay. I'm just gonna pretend like that wasn't said. Okay. So Singer thinks that you are obligated to dive in and rescue the child in that sort of situation. And then his sort of point, though, is he says, okay, well, what would make it obligatory to dive in and rescue the child in that case? Well, that would apply to the situation of people all around the globe. So right now, people around the globe are living in dire poverty. They're dying from disease at very early ages. Many children die from malaria before the age of three, and their lives could be saved if they just had access to mosquito nets. It'd be pretty cheap to buy those children mosquito nets. They're charitable organizations where if you just donate, they will buy and provide mosquito nets. And these charitable organizations have been demonstrated to be quite effective at saving the lives of these children. And so Singer's thought, his basic idea in this whole paper is if you're obligated to save the child who's drowning in the pond nearby, even if that means you have to ruin your suit or it costs some money, um, then you should also be obligated to save the lives of those children around the globe who are dying needlessly of preventable diseases like malaria who are starving to death, um, those sorts of things. Yeah, maybe don't buy the suit in the first place and instead buy the mosquito nets. That's right. And then if you come across the child, you won't even have to think about whether you should ruin your suit. You'll be wearing ordinary cheap <laughs> You'll clothes. be naked already. <laughs> <laughs> Ready to dive in, not even encumbered. You'll be more effective at saving the child. Okay, so yeah, uh, so singers that's Singer's sort of picture. So... I'll just walk through his, I mean, so I think there's sort of one big argument that he makes in this paper. It's sort of a sustained argument with two conclusions. So the first argument is, he starts with this premise that he thinks is nobody will reject. That suffering and death from lack of food, shelter, and medical care are very bad. Nobody's going to reject that. That's a very bad thing. His second premise, and this is where a lot of the action is happening in his argument, is that it is in our power, and where our refers to people in relatively affluent countries, it's in our power to prevent something very bad from happening without thereby sacrificing anything else morally significant. So if it's in our power to prevent something very bad from happening without sacrificing anything else that's morally significant, we morally ought to do it. Right. And it is in our power to prevent the suffering and death from lack of food, shelter, and medical care from happening without thereby sacrificing anything else morally significant, just as it's in our power to rescue the child who's drowning in the pond, it's in our power to send money to the Against Malaria Foundation or Oxfam or 
uh, give directly, these sorts of charitable organizations that directly make a huge impact on people's lives who are otherwise going to die or suffer enormously. And so we ought to do that which is in our power, the conclusion just follows, that we, we ought morally to do that which is in our power to prevent the suffering and death from the lack of food and shelter and medical care of those who are in danger. Now, this might seem relatively uncontroversial so far. It's kind of abstract. But when, what Singer points out is that, look, we could, be giving, we could be doing this constantly. Instead of you know, buying a movie ticket and spent, having a nice Friday evening, you could give that money to help somebody in need. And in fact, you ought to give that money to help somebody else in need because yeah. your time at the movies is morally insignificant especially when compared with saving the life of a child who is at danger of dying from malaria. Same with all kinds of luxury goods that we purchase for ourselves, these sorts of trivial things that we enjoy. We spend money left and right on these sorts of things. Singer saying, you are doing something wrong by spending that money on yourself in those sorts of trivial ways. You ought to be giving that money instead to saving people who are at risk of death from, say, malaria. So that's the sort of basic argument. So Singer points out that, you know, ordinarily when we think about charity, you know, we think of there's sort of different moral categories that we bring to bear on actions. So some actions are just permissible. Um, So, for instance, when I decide to take my dog for a walk, that's morally permissible. Other actions are morally obligatory. So if I promise you that I'll meet you for lunch, there's a sense in which I owe you that. I have an obligation to you. And finally, there are acts that are what are called supererogatory, which literally means above obligation or above duty, um, what Singer refers to as charity. And so we ordinarily think that people who give money to rescue people who are dying from malaria, so somebody who gives a lot of money to a charitable organization that provides mosquito nets for children who are at risk from malaria, that person is doing something that's supererogatory. It's a matter of charity. That's the way we ordinarily understand that sort of action in terms of our moral categories that I just laid out. What Singer's saying is that, no, in fact, we should think that giving money to, say, the Against Malaria Foundation is more like keeping a promise to a friend, and it's less like doing something that's very noble or like something that you're not required to do, but you know, we applaud you when you do it. So there's a sense right. in which if I say to my friend, I say, I'm going to meet you for lunch, and then I show up, it's not like everybody's like, like wow, what a good person <laughs> Justin is. He's just a great man. Like, nobody really thinks that, right? We think that I do what I'm obligated to do. Yeah, you owe that to your friend to show up. Of course you do it. You don't deserve a sort of moral pat on the back for doing it. Singer is saying in the same way, giving all this money to the Against Malaria Foundation is not something you deserve a moral pat on the back for. It's something you're obligated to do. And it's something, if you don't give all this money to charity, if you instead spend money on yourself for, like, nice clothes or a nice car, instead of giving that money to charity, it's sort of like we can criticize you in the same way that we criticize me for not showing up to lunch with a friend after I promised to do so. So this is a pretty radical conclusion he reaches, both about what we should be doing in our day-to-day lives in terms of our spending habits. So he's saying you should be just diverting tons and tons of money from your ordinary discretionary spending and giving it to people who desperately need it. That's already pretty radical. And he's also saying our whole way of understanding morality and what it requires of us should be altered. We should rethink this whole category of charity and charitable giving we should think of it much more along the lines of sort of our obligations not to steal or to keep our promises 
rather than as something that a good person, a very noble person would do, a very magnanimous person would do. Yeah, That's not what's going on. He's not just trying to convince you sh- you should give a huge amount of m- your money to charity. He's also trying to convince you you should shame your friends who don't. Well, so I think, I mean, I think that he might think that there are questions about whether that will be effective. Right. At, but, but yeah, it's like in principle, your friends who don't give lots of money to charity are liable to the same sort of criticism that you would, you know, level at your friends if they say they'll show up and then they, they flake right. or something like that. It would that. be better to have a moral community, he thinks, where it was the norm to criticize people who didn't give rather than praise people who did give. That's even, correct. Whether or not it'd be actually effective for me to shame my friends given our current norm. That's right. And as, I mean, as this sort of exchange uh, that Dr. Curry and I just had reveals, he is saying... Right now, where we are as a society is way at odds with where we ought to be. So, you know, he says that there's a big gap between what morality requires of us and what we think morality requires of us and what we're actually doing in our day-to-day lives. We're all living grossly immoral lives on Singer's view, which is pretty... uh, It's a striking conclusion, and I think he argues for it quite powerfully. Yeah, so Singer has become, over the last 40 years now, 50 years now or so, the dominant voice arguing in favor of utilitarianism. And then Lindsay's going to introduce us to perhaps the dominant voice arguing against utilitarianism. Yes, so I'm going to just unpack the kind of main arguments that Bernard Williams makes um, against utilitarianism. As Devin said, as Dr. Curry said, (laughs) uh, Williams is taken to be a very strong voice against this theory. So one way to understand Singer's argument is that it rests on a premise of utilitarianism. Or the main way that you can see Williams as being against Singer is if you think that Singer's kind of background or his backbone here is that, hey, if we do the sorts of things that Justin was saying, we're going to maximize utility, right? So that's something we can talk about later because I know we have different thoughts on whether or not Singer actually is you know, whether his argument does need that utilitarian background. But anyway, assuming that something like that is the case, right, with Singer, Williams gives a couple examples, uh, and he's not talking directly to Singer, but to anyone who holds this sort of view, right? So example number one is there's this guy, George, who's a a PhD in chemistry, and he's offered a job um, at a chemical warfare plant, right? And he, he needs a job because he has a family and his wife is working. And so there's kind of no way around his getting a job to make income for his family, but he's morally against chemical warfare. And so he sort of has a conundrum here as to whether or not he should accept the job. The man who's offering him the job says, well, look, you know, I mean, if you don't take the job, a different chemist who actually isn't opposed to chemical warfare is likely going to take it. And by having that job, they're going to do a lot more bad things with chemical warfare than you would, given that you're morally opposed to it. Example number two is a very famous one from Williams. It's often you know, talked about. This man, Jim, is in a Native American town, and he sees 10 Native Americans up against the wall with a man whose name, is his name Pedro? Is that his name? I've always, whatever, it doesn't matter. <laughs> you can call him you Pedro. Know. We're going to call him Pedro. I think that that's his name. But anyway, um, so uh, Pedro is there and he says, Jim, you know, I'm going to kill all 10 of these Native Americans um, because they've been trying to protest against the government. And I want to set a precedent for anyone who wants to try to protest the government. But given that you're this lovely visitor in our village, I'm going to give you the amazing opportunity of killing one of them. And if you kill one of them, I'm going to let the other nine live. If you don't kill one of them, I'm going to kill all 10. 
And, and there are a lot of other examples like this that Williams could pose. There's nothing all that specific to these two. But the idea, Williams says, is if you're a utilitarian, it should be immediately obvious what to do in this situation. George should take the job from the first example. Jim should kill the Native American. And what I really love, what I think is particularly strong about Williams' argument here is I don't read him as saying hey, there is a clear right thing to do. I don't think Williams is necessarily saying, oh my God, Jim shouldn't kill the Native American or George shouldn't take the job. The idea is that to a utilitarian, it's clear. It's obvious what the right thing to do is. And if you read these examples and even pause for a second, or if you think that there's some other consideration that George and Jim should keep in mind here, then that speaks against utilitarianism because it means that the utilitarian has kind of overlooked something in calculating what the morally correct thing to do is. There's some sense in which it's it might not be all that clear that George should do this or that Jim should do this. And I know we'll, you know, talk about this later, you know, There are a lot of different ideas of like what those sorts of things that we should be considering as a, you know, in addition to or instead of maximizing utility are. One is this kind of idea of integrity that Williams briefly mentions, right? The way I've always understood Williams is if you hesitate, that shows you that there's something off with utilitarianism. Yeah, I think, and I think that's a pretty powerful, yeah, argument. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right that that's what's really interesting about these arguments. Because one other really common objection to utilitarianism is that the utilitarian calculus in real-world situations is often really difficult to pull off, right? Yeah. It's really hard to figure out what action is going to maximize utility, Um, But that's just a problem about, like, whether or not we're in a position to tell what the right thing to do is, rather than really questioning whether or not utilitarianism dictates what the right thing to do is, right? Right. Williams's cases are fascinating because they're cases where the utilitarian calculus is really straightforward, right? Just killing one person versus killing a whole bunch of people. Um, or, you know, feeding your family without making any sort of change in whether or not the chemical weapons are produced since someone else would just take that job versus not feeding your family without making any difference to whether the weapons mm-hmm. are produced, right? And so yeah. if you hesitate over these cases, you're hesitating not because the utilitarian calculus is difficult, but because you have a problem with utilitarianism itself as a moral theory rather than as sort of a guide to how we should actually figure out how to act in the world. Yeah, I I mean, I think for Williams, this is not an empirical, this has nothing to do, you know, to a certain extent with these empirical considerations. And I think, you know, one thing that he does talk a little bit about is, hey, there are arguments that the utilitarian might make to say that, hey, in fact, no, you know, it's not, it's not entirely clear that George should take the job or that Jim should kill the Native American. And this is where he talks about, you know, potential psychological effects Mm -hmm. um, on the agent or this precedent effect, right? These are arguments that someone who endorses utilitarianism can turn to and say, well, hold on, you know, maybe it wouldn't be the best thing for George to take the job if he's so psychologically affected by taking it. And then uh, similarly, maybe it wouldn't be the best thing for Jim to kill the Native American if it would set this precedent, right? Or this idea that anyone in a similar situation should do that. But I think he effectively argues against those, you know, objections as well. And I think one of my favorite things that he says is, well, hey, you know, with regards to this focus on psychological effects, that's only going to happen if the person in the situation isn't a utilitarian or doesn't realize that in fact they've done the right thing 
right? I mean, that's the only, according to Williams, the only reason George would be faced with such psychological harm after taking the job is if he wasn't convinced that he'd done the right thing. And so for Williams, turning to that kind of reasoning seems irrational, or it seems like you're not, you're, you're calling yourself a utilitarian, but you're not actually um, adopting the utilitarian standpoint, or you're assuming that the person in that hypothetical situation isn't right. Right. Similarly with the precedent effect. We've already actually kind of hinted at that sort of precedent effect in the back and forth that Dr. Curry and I had about whether you should shame your friends, right? Yeah, that's, that's true. Of, yeah. That, that's sort of a broadly, I mean, so I would start out by stating that I don't think I accept the characterization that this argument by Singer requires that you accept utilitarianism mm-hmm. at all. And so I'm, I'm a little bit more on the skeptical side that these arguments from Williams really get at this argument from Singer, mm-hmm. regardless of whether we think they're good objections to utilitarianism. But putting that aside, we saw pretty quickly, there's what sometimes people call the, this sort of esoteric morality aspect of utilitarianism. So the thought is, well, utilitarianism might be the right moral theory, and it tells us what you should do, but people can't actually live by it because it's psychologically, they're not capable of it, or it needs to be kept secret from people or something like that. Because if people actually understood that what you should always do is do the thing that produces the best overall consequences, it actually would somehow be self-defeating because people would not be capable of acting in the relevant way that would maximize the best overall consequences. And so one, one way that's already come up is we could see, well, you know, even if in fact what everybody morally is required to do is to give to charity, and it's in principle appropriate to shame that person. If we were to shame the person who doesn't give to charity in the relevant way, that would be have sort of bad sort of downstream effects. And so that's the kind of move that I think that Williams is already sort of anticipating with that point that uh, Dr. Fiorelli brought out. Can we spell out how these arguments of Williams's are at least commonly taken to undercut Singer's argument before maybe moving into Justin's questioning of whether or not they do actually undercut Singer's argument? If you are taking Williams to be against Singer here, I think the way you need to understand Singer's argument is that at the backbone of it is we should try to maximize utility in the world. And part of what that maximization of utility requires is minimizing suffering, right? So Singer isn't saying that, you know, everyone should be well off in exactly the same way or at exactly the same level. But it's sort of if you can give some of your financial stability to other people such that they can suffer less and you can still be fine, then why not do that? That sounds quite utilitarian because the idea is, hey, you want to try to maximize utility the most you can without taking away other kinds of utility. Just to say the same thing, but in a very simplified case, buying a really nice coat would make Justin a little bit happy. But for the same money, I could buy a bunch of malaria nets and relieve a whole lot of suffering on a basis of a lot of people and so there's this really straightforward utilitarian inference that you should buy the mosquito nets rather than the coat right and it's precisely that sort of utilitarian inference that williams is casting aspersions on I mean, Singer isn't claiming here that you ought to be maximizing overall utility. He's just saying if it's in your power to save the life of somebody who's about to die and you can do it at basically no cost to yourself, we think you should do it. Um, I think that that's a, yeah. that goes beyond utilitarianism, that sort of idea of just it's so sometimes people talk about this in terms of duties of rescue. Um, utilitarianism brings in a lot more baggage with it about what makes things valuable. It brings in baggage about how we ought to be promoting people's happiness more generally. 
And also it brings in baggage, like cases, I mean, I think uh, Lindsay was right not to focus on this other case, but it brings in cases where we just think that utilitarianism gets things wrong because it says you should inflict suffering on some people to yeah. bring about pleasure for other people. Nothing Singer is saying is in signing up for any of that in this article, right? He's not saying that you should harm other people to save the life. He's not saying if you can push one person into the pond and thereby use their body as a, as a rowboat and then save five children, you should do it. He's not saying that. He's just saying if you can prevent, even subject to ordinary moral constraints, if you can prevent the death or suffering of an innocent with basically no sacrifice, you morally ought to do it. You're morally obligated to do it. And I think that that's, that's weaker than utilitarianism. It is. It seems to be a matter just as much of duty as anything else. I think that you can endorse different kinds of moral frameworks and, and come to this exact conclusion and, in fact, um, accept the premises too. Damn. I, I think here's where I think there's a distinct criticism that Williams makes that doesn't depend on his general critique of utilitarianism, which mm-hmm. it doesn't quite come out in this piece by Williams uh, as a direct response to Singer, but we can sort of do some work on Williams's behalf to sort of connect the two. Mm-hmm. So part of what Williams is getting at in those really evocative examples of George and uh, Jim is that people have things that are deeply valuable to them. They have sort of, I mean, and Lindsay sort of referenced it with this idea of integrity. So people have values that are deeply important to their lives as a whole. They're some, elsewhere, Williams refers to them as like ground projects. So being a pacifist is deeply important to George. It's part of his identity. Certain parts of our identities are part of what make life worth living to us. And so we might think that uh, what Singer says isn't really sensitive to that aspect of our moral lives. That we have, you know, projects that make life worth living, that we have connections to people who are close to us, and that it's appropriate to sort of favor them over people who are far away, even if those other people are in desperate need. And so the thought might be that Singer has a sort of impoverished view of the moral life because he doesn't give much room for accounting for something like ground projects. Like Jim is against killing, and it's a part of the core of who he is. Anyone in Jim's situation should, according to a utilitarian, do this certain thing. It shouldn't matter what sorts of core beliefs Jim has. So there's two sort of versions of the argument. One is like you should just keep giving until you're basically at the point where you're no better off from the people to whom you're giving. That's the really radical view, that you should just be, you should be continuously giving until giving makes yourself worse off than the person whose life you're saving. So it's not just that you should ruin your suit, you should destroy (laughs) your house, you should, you know, do anything that's in your power to save the child's life, basically, um, so long as it doesn't make you worse off than that child that's about to drown. And now, that's, that's very the, utilitarian. Right? That's, I mean, that's much closer okay. to utilitarianism. Okay. Yeah, okay. That's pretty much, I mean, but, I mean, or you could just say it's an incredibly stringent duty of rescue to the point where you're like, well, this doesn't really seem like it's about easy rescue anymore. I think he's not really as interested. I mean, he thinks that that's true, but he's like, look, I'm not going to even rely on that sort of really ambitious claim. I'm just going to say, if you can sacrifice something that doesn't have any moral significance, if you can just, you know, sort of your $5, you know, coffee drink or something like that, then you ought to do that. But it's not just the one time. It's that this, this choice, you make it over and over again. So, you know, think about it this way. We live lifestyles where we're spending money constantly on things that don't have moral significance. He's saying we should not just the one time when the person comes up with the, you know, change bucket from UNICEF or whatever and says, can you spare $5? You say, okay, I've done it, and now I've fulfilled my obligation. No, he's saying that you should, instead of buying the car that's $50,000, you should buy a very cheap car 
and then you should give the rest to charity. And then when it's time to decide whether to buy a nice house or a tiny apartment, you should buy the tiny apartment and then kind of keep giving. Because all those things are nice, but they don't really have moral significance. So this is really going to rest on each person's view of what is morally significant to them. So people could end up having the exact same wealth situation, but giving completely different amounts of money. So I guess it depends on, yeah, whether we think moral significance is defined subjectively or objectively. So it could be that I'm like, to me, it's very important that I live in a house that's the size of like a mansion and that I have like pet tigers prowling the grounds and grand baby pianos and all the nice things. That's very morally significant to me. Now, if people just had really, I mean, sometimes people call this expensive tastes. Like, so people had really expensive tastes then singers, you would say, okay, well, I guess they don't have to really give because it's very morally significant to them that they live this very lavish lifestyle. Clearly, singer isn't going in for that sort of view. And also, it would be weird to go in for that sort of view because then it would make what your obligations are to help people in need depend on whether you really, really love fancy stuff, right? And he doesn't think that. So I think he has to have a view about what's actually objectively of moral significance. And that view implicitly is saying things like your suit is not of moral significance. Well, so I'm not that saying that that's a... wrong, but that's right. where I, I think, I mean, I think naturally that's sort of where you're kind of moving towards pushing back at, uh, Lindsay. Part of why I asked that is because I think that that is a utilitarian response, yeah. if that's the response that Singer's going to give. So I do think it rests on utilitarianism to a certain degree because there is this objective, right? I think in order to give an explanation of how, <laughs> how do you figure out really? Well, so, I mean, yeah, I, I don't think that, that, I don't think you have to be a utilitarian there. I'm, I'm going to sort of stick up for singer and say he can resist going full utilitarian for a lot longer than I think people give him credit for in this article. So, so what would he say as to how you can objectively figure out? Go ahead. Well, I mean, yeah. I think you could give a lot. Of, so there are two sorts of you, things going on here. One's about what there's, it's a question of what makes something valuable or what makes something morally significant. And we could give a lot of views about that. I would think that somebody like, you know, you could be a moral philosopher who doesn't sign up for utilitarianism and still say, yeah, your suit is not morally significant. Oh, I totally agree with that. I guess just to clarify, I'm wondering what Singer would say. I think for the record, we should say Singer is an all-out utilitarian, and he does buy the stronger version of the argument that Justin spelled out, that really you should give up everything that's not of comparable moral worth, not just uh, give up anything that's morally insignificant, right? So Singer, for himself, and for people who are already like-minded with him as utilitarians, think that what his argument entails is um, this really radical redistribution where um, you seek to maximize overall utility for everyone on the planet. But I think the question that, that Justin is pushing, and which is really interesting, is how far Singer's argument in this piece can go in convincing people even who hold really different moral frameworks, in that even though that's how Singer's going to end up spelling out moral significance, it seems like you can spell out moral significance in lots of different ways and still end up with the conclusion that we ought to pretty radically restructure our lives. So for the record, I'll, I'll just go on the record saying this, that I am not a utilitarian. And I find this argument pretty convincing. I mean, there are points where I push back, but I think something close to Singer's conclusion is probably right. And I don't think that I would explain what makes something morally significant. It's just a matter of whether it produces overall utility. So that's part of my, part of my motivation for this. Is I'm saying, yeah. well, I don't sign up for this view that Singer puts forward as his own, but I still think his argument's probably 
basically right. Yeah. I agree. I mean, I, I find a lot of his premises and his conclusion very convincing. I do think, I think it's important to, as you're saying, Devin, and as you're saying, Justin, you know, figure out how far this argument can go, even with people who aren't utilitarian and people who have different frameworks. The way that Singer specifically would spell out how you figure out what moral significance is that would be utilitarian, right? The way that Singer would. Now, I could spell out the idea of moral significance in a different way, right? And still reach his conclusion. But my point is, you know, in order for him, the, the kind of rationale that he would provide at the end of the day is utilitarian. And just to bring it back, I think that that's why William's argument can have a bearing on this, the, the argument that Singer is giving as well. I mean, I think it's a, 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 a reasonable point to push back on the argument. And this is where all the action's happening is what's moral significance. Yeah. And Singer just says very little about that. I think he just rests, he appeals to our intuitions that the suit isn't morally significant. Your mm-hmm. trivial sort of everyday things aren't morally significant. And he does say, well, here's how I would go in spelling out, you know, this much stronger view about compromoral significance. But the core of his argument, he just doesn't say much about it. So I think it's not a matter right. of saying, how would Singer spell it out? He's leaving it kind of open. And I think that that's a move that a lot of moral philosophers make in a lot of cases. They say, look, however you want to spell out moral significance, you're going to end up endorsing something like my conclusion. So I'm not going to wed myself to a particular view. And I think that he's going for that sort of move here because he's trying to get as many people on board as possible. And I guess I just don't see I'm, – I'm usually reluctant yeah. to say he must be accepting view X in order to – except premise Y or something like that, unless we find like really good knockdown evidence for that. Because then we're just sort of forcing somebody into a view that we can then object to. And it might be possible that they don't have to accept that sort of view. But I also do think that like, the more you think about moral significance, you know, I could uh, imagine someone like William saying, hey, you know, who are you to say that objectively thing X doesn't have moral significance, right? So like, yeah, to to one person, that grand piano in the living room, of course that's not morally significant when you think about all of the other things in the world that you could be spending that money on. But say someone, and his name is Larry for some reason, because that popped into my head, that grand piano is very important to Larry because being able to have this kind of expensive thing in the living room, as ridiculous as it might sound to someone else, that really means something to him. And so giving up the grand piano would be something of moral significance. Does that? And so I think that, you know, that's where someone like Williams can come back and push these kinds of individual values. And and that's, again, where I think we're going to see this variation in who's donating how much, even though they might have the same kind of wealth status. Does that, yeah, here's does that a, make sense? Here's a real life case. So um, Walt Clyde Frazier, a 1970s Knicks star, brought the Knicks their only two championships in franchise history, has ever <laughs> since God. been... Um, a commentator for the New York Knicks, and he is famous for wearing a different flamboyant suit to every game. Oh, I know who this is. Yep, there you go. Just from that, yeah. Yeah, the okay, commentator with the flamboyant oh, suit. never mind. Clyde has made this sort of daily fashion statement integral to his life's work, right? His life's work is to bring joy to many New York Knicks fans by being this commentator who has this very particular style, and these expensive suits are an integral part of that style. And so Bernard Williams would say that it just isn't taking into account Walt Clyde Frazier's integrity to say that as a general principle, you know, expensive suits are just morally insignificant 
um, and certainly not the sort of thing that should come into any sort of uh, moral calculus when you're trying to figure out whether or not you should buy the suit or donate that money to charity. Mm -hmm. And whether or not you think, you know, Walt Clyde Fravager's over-the-top suit habit is is justified, I take it the, the central point there really does cut against um, what is an assumption of singers in the framing of famine, affluence, and morality, which is that according to anyone's standards of moral significance, it's going to be obvious that people's money ought to be dramatically redirected towards charity. Because some people just do have life projects that require them uh, uh, to, to channel an enormous amount of money towards things that seem trivial when viewed from sort of outside of an appreciation of that project. I, I was with you all the way, Devin, until the enormous amount of resource requires an enormous <laughs> amount of resources. So here's where I think that this, this is where I'm totally on board with Devin's sort of line of argument. So ground projects, matters of integrity, values that make life worth living to some people, we should we need to count those as morally significant in some ways. And those will require resources. I think that as the spending, I'm just finding, you know, in the example of Larry from uh, Lindsay, in the example of uh, <laughs> Walt uh, Clyde Frazier, those sorts of examples, as the spending gets larger and larger, the more I'm sort of inclined to be like, well, couldn't you really live your values? So, so you know, Frazier cares about being a flamboyant personality in some way. That seems to me to be the value. If we say that the value is having these sorts of expensive suits, then I mean, I would sort of say, well, actually, that, I mean, the way Devin sort of described it was like he wants to be entertaining to these Knicks fans. It's not really about the suits. The suits are a, a means to realizing the sort of value that is morally significant. An extremely effective value. means. You know, you An can go on Instagram effective. and see all of his suits laid out, and it's got millions <laughs> of subscribers. I mean, I guess, so here's, here's a way of putting it, is that I think that ground projects are something that seem to be valuable and they seem to be something that we want to say are insulated from these demands of morality that Singer articulates. Like, I find that plausible. So then the question is, how much do you need to spend in order to fulfill those ground projects? How much of that spending is permissible in fulfilling that ground projects? How much of a, like, sort of permission do you have to sort of devote to that? But then the, the more fundamental thing, I think, is, like, if we grant that, that you do have this permission to spend on ground projects... Wouldn't we still expect people to radically redistribute a lot of the, their spending towards charitable sorts of giving? So, for instance, I'm sure Fraser, even if we say, okay, let's grant Devin's characterization, Fraser needs to spend all this money on suits in order to fulfill this ground project. There are other things that Fraser is doing that don't plausibly fit that description. Yeah, he probably has a few nice cars that you never see on TV. Exactly. He doesn't, <laughs> yeah. So, there's lots of other luxuries that he has, and he could still be spending the money on those other things. So, it's. Even if we grant this sort of move that Devin's making that draws on Williams, I still wonder how much people would be permitted to sort of spend on themselves versus giving to charity. Well, I think, too, you know, another oh – God, now I'm going ahead and defending Singer. Um, but I think that uh, – which actually I do agree with him. I was just yeah, hoping go for to devil's advocate. Well, welcome to the good side. Whatever. No, I was already on the good side, okay? I was already If you there. say so. No. But anyway – um, but no, so, you know, thinking more about it and, and Devin's example, you know, so say, say you, you know, make this, this argument that, you know, we've been pushing here of like, you know, you're, you know, what's morally important to, what's morally significant to people will differ. And what about, you know, 
people who have expensive tastes. What about, right, people who want these, who need these grand pianos? Wouldn't Singer just say, okay, well, part of what I'm trying to do is shift our idea of what is morally significant. What I'm trying to do is show you that, in fact, you know, you need to rethink these moral categories. You need to rethink where, you know, the best place for your money to go is, right? And so I feel like he has an argument even against that, which is, okay, fine. Like, you know, if you really believe that you need all of these suits, what I'm trying to, to talk to you about is maybe you don't. Maybe you should rethink how important that is to you. And that's fine. That's an upshot. That's one of the ways in which, uh, you know, Singer's argument is so important. And it has these kinds of, that you were talking about earlier, Justin, these upshots for our definitions of, you know, obligation versus charity and, you know, et cetera. I would say there's an interesting question that I, that, you know, read, I mean, I've read this piece a couple more than a couple of times but something occurred to me this time when I was thinking about it in light of the Williams and this sort of stuff about integrity and people living by their values so let's take Devin's case at face value and I'll I'll stop raising objections to it part of what makes life worth living to Frazier is providing this entertainment to the people by having expensive suits and we'll we'll take that at, at face value so it is morally significant I mean with us more generally I mean I think most kind of sorts of projects that Williams has in mind being a pacifist you know, not not wanting to kill an innocent person. Lots of projects like that, they're not as expensive. Mm. And moreover, even to the extent that they are, like we could imagine other sorts of expensive projects, people don't actually spend their money on them. So I'm thinking of the person who really cares about being a great violinist, and they could save up all of their money and buy the perfect violin and get lessons from the best person, but they, like the rest of us, they spend their money on Netflix subscriptions and all these other sorts of things which are not integral to their sort of life projects or something like that. And what I sort of found myself wondering was, even if we grant that people are permitted to sort of spend on their projects and not give that money to help those in desperate need, do we actually spend in those sorts of ways? Like just a matter of human behavior in our very sort of consumerist society where it's just like, you're just constantly shelling out money for meaningless things that bring you minimal joy for a very short period of time. And so if, if, in fact, we have this sort of psychology where we're not, in fact, spending on our projects very much at all, we're just spending on meaningless crap all the time, basically, then the sort of defense against Singer's conclusion that appeals to our plans or projects or values actually doesn't get very far. So we could, if, if in fact, we were wired very different psychologically, such that we did pursue our life goals and we devoted all of our resources and energy to that, then I think then Singer's argument wouldn't have that much mm-hmm. bearing because we'd mm-hmm. be spending all that money on something of great moral significance. But that's just not human nature. We, at least it's not, I shouldn't say it's not human nature. It's not the way we <laughs> behave and we're inclined to behave in a very consumerist society like the one we're in today. Yeah, I mean, would you say that that is really what Singer is pushing against? It's interesting. He has some offhand remarks near the end about how yeah. it'd be better if our society were less of a consumer-driven society. I don't think that that's his main thrust as much. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I think he really just thinks we ought to be out helping and rescuing other people. And if we were a consumer, I mean, imagine we were a consumerist society to a large extent, but we also just gave tons and tons of money to charity. I think he would live with that. Yeah. And as the years have gone by, he sort of watered down his position. And instead of saying, you should be giving everything, he signed up with the effective altruists who don't say you should be giving everything. They just call for 
a sort of certain set manageable amount, which is way more than what people currently give charitably. Mm. Though, to be clear, they don't give that because they think there's a purely moral argument for that, right? They do that for strategic reasons because they think that they might be able to convince everybody to tithe 10% of their income, but they won't be able to convince everybody to live on $13,000 a year, which is actually what they think everybody should yeah. be doing insofar as they're stringent utilitarians. That's absolutely right. I mean, I, I, I brought that up just to say, it seems like his issue is not with it. He would live with sure. the consumerist society where people give a lot of money to charity. He would accept that as a big... Dramatic improvement. Wow. Yeah. Dramatic improvement. If we just, instead of spending discretionary income, like just on meaningless stuff, uh, instead of spending like, you know, 40% or 70%, I don't know. I don't know what people spend. <laughs> but I mean, a huge amount of what we spend is on unnecessary stuff that's not connected to our ground projects. Right. If we just cut that into a fraction... He would say that's still probably not what we're morally obligated to do, but we're much closer to meeting our obligations. If we agree with Williams' attack on utilitarianism, then we also agree with Singer. Is the idea, okay, we can accept Singer's argument, but not from a utilitarian standpoint? Right. We can accept Singer's premises in conclusion, but when it comes down to it, the further we go, you know, we, we need to make sure that the, the grounding of our moral framework isn't utilitarian. And so we'll differ with Singer in that respect, but I feel like what the one big upshot with Singer's argument is that we've all been, you know, not following moral obligations, right? To a certain degree, we've all been immoral. Yeah. So yeah. that might be one unattractive. <laughs> Someone <laughs> reading this, right, could could think, okay, well, that's definitely one negative thing with Singer's, right? Because he really means that ought in, a, in an ought way, right? And so that just means that we've all been living morally flawed lives. And I could I see someone, you. <laughs> I, I agree, I agree, right? But I'm yeah. saying I could see someone, you know, often one feature of um, a moral argument that can push people away from it or make them feel not convinced by it is this kind of upshot of, okay, well, everyone's been immoral then. Yeah. There's something that can be unattractive about that. Yeah, yeah I, I wonder if that could be one argument against Singer is, my God, if that's true, then we're all immoral. And surely that can't be like, that conclusion can't be true. It can't be that everyone in the developed world is immoral. I don't buy into that, but I'm just saying I think that could be an argument against it. I think one way of articulating that worry in a kind of Williamsy way is to say, look, our moral philosophy has to reflect the actual ways in which humans can behave morally towards each other given human nature. Right. And you might think the fact that Peter Singer published this article in the 1970s, it got lots of press. It was, you know, as popularly well received as a philosophy article has ever been popularly well received. And yet nothing has fundamentally changed. Right. Indeed, wealth inequality has gotten way worse since the 1970s between first world countries and third world countries and even within first world countries. You might think that those facts just show that it's just not in human nature to redirect most of our resources to people who we have no sort of real relationship with, no sort of connection with other than knowing that they are people in need on the other side of the world. And if you think that human morality is um, in some sort of essential sense confined to dictating how we deal with the actual relationships we have with the people in our lives, then you might think that it just sort of lies outside of the moral domain to argue that we should redistribute our wealth in these really dramatic ways 
that don't sort of come back around to bear on our own personal lives in any in any real respect. Or no, I, that I not like... enough people read Peter Singer. Yeah. <laughs> right? Not I enough mean, people do more people... reasoning. Yeah. And, and yeah. that's one argument that in favor of thinking more along the lines of someone like Singer, maybe we would and we very much can change our behavior, but we don't. We don't think morally enough about it. Right. Do you, you know? I mean, I think what Devin and Lindsay are you're both getting at is there's this there's two ideas about what moral philosophy should do. So one idea is that it should really capture something about this practice that we have, this this sort of thing in the world that's morality that we all seem to understand and that governs our daily lives. And the task of philosophy is to investigate that and sort of analyze it and to some extent kind of describe it. A very different understanding of moral philosophy is that what moral philosophers should be doing is making arguments about what you should do. And it's totally okay if that goes against our everyday understanding. In fact, it's the task of the moral philosopher to challenge our preconceived notions about what counts as obligation and what counts as charity or super erogation. And I think that, I mean, pretty clearly Singer falls in the latter camp. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting. I mean, he sort of, he gets at this when he he quotes St. Thomas Aquinas, who you wouldn't necessarily think of as somebody who's engaged in that project. So St. Thomas Aquinas, Catholic saint, known for integrating the philosophy of Aristotle and the Catholic teachings, especially in the works of St. Augustine. Thomas Aquinas is arguing for radical changes in the way we give. And you could think about that, too, for other sort of religious figures. They called for radical changes in how we ought to behave. And this is where I'll push back on Devin's point. I mean, you know, they said, don't murder, don't steal. Well, we're still doing that all the many years <laughs> later, right? So the fact that we're not giving more charitably doesn't, to me, make me think that that's evidence that it's not a reasonable or, or that it's somehow really at odds with human nature sort of thing, given that there are other sorts of moral precepts that were announced that seem to be at odds with, in many ways with existing moral frameworks that we now say, yeah, we should do it, even though we fail to live up to it on the regular. Yeah, I think I almost feel like there's sort of three different frameworks we could take. One is going back to what you were saying, Justin, describing, in fact, you know, how people behave morally already. So this kind of descriptive moral philosophy. And then at the other end is this kind of more revisionist moral philosophy that you're, but then there's also kind of, and I don't know if this is entirely the way to put it, but kind of in the middle where it could be revisionist, but it's still possible, right? It's still a matter of what humans can do. And so it doesn't go against human nature in that respect because we are very able to do it. And I find, I see that as as slightly different from that more descriptive moral framework that you were initially talking about, Justin. And I think I I, I put singers there, right? It's, It's revisionist, but it is still very much within the bounds of human reasoning and human nature to the extent that we're able to do this, right? There, you know, certainly we're able to do what Singer is saying. Um, The fact that we don't do it doesn't mean that we can't, doesn't mean that it's not in our human nature. And I think actually, I don't know. I mean, I I think that that again is in Singer's favor because I think that that just in a way even more broadly goes to show that we need to think more morally about what we're doing. And I think part of what Singer is saying is we're not, (laughs) you know, we're not thinking enough about where our money is going and we're not thinking enough about people that aren't, you know, we didn't talk a ton about this, but the idea of proximity, right? Um, We get very wrapped up in our own lives and we don't think enough about what's going on in a different country that's suffering. And we should do that more often. Yeah. I mean, so Singer loves to come out. So there's, it's, this might be of interest. He comes out when there's like a big event that's he thinks is like kind of wasteful and that money could have been given much more effectively. So (laughs) I don't know if you all remember this, but back in 2015, (laughs) There was a young boy. He had cancer. He loved Batman. He got 
basically the entirety of San Francisco is turned into a parade for this kid. President Obama calls in and says, you got Joker, great job, Batman, and there's like a villain. It's like millions of dollars are spent on this one child with leukemia. And, you know, on the one hand, many of us read that and they're like, that's that's heartwarming. Peter Singer was like... (laughs) This is bullshit. <laughs> how could we waste all this money? Do you know how many children we could have saved who don't look like us, who don't come from the same background like us? I think, I mean, there's something very powerful. I mean, on the one yeah, hand, yeah, it's, yeah. it's demanding a lot of us to say you should care as much about people across the globe as your neighbor down the street or somebody across the country. But on the other hand, I think there's something very yeah. kind of affirming or it's very egalitarian. It's it, We all matter the same. Yep. I mean, if you wanted to put it in religious language, you could say something. We're all God's creatures. It doesn't matter what we look like, what country we come from. Nobody should have to suffer. So I think that, I mean, we do have this psychological tendency to care about distance and whether people look like us or whether they're like us in other ways. And Singer's really challenging that mm-hmm. in a way that I think is very powerful and, and compelling. Thanks again to Dr. Lindsay Fiorelli and Dr. Justin Bernstein. One major takeaway from our discussion is that figuring out what is and what is not of moral significance is one of the central problems in ethics. For example, at the core of Plato's dialogue, The Euthyphro, which we read earlier this semester, is the question of whether or not one ought to be partial towards one's own father when making moral judgments. Are our family relationships morally significant? Peter Singer thinks not. He thinks he himself did a morally suboptimal thing when he spent a great deal of money to provide his own mother with good hospice care. Philosophers like Bernard Williams and Confucius disagree. According to Confucius, our close relationships are themselves extremely morally significant. Singer should not only spend money to care for his mother at the end of her life, he should actually actively cover up for her if he were to find out that she was stealing from her caretakers. So one question that philosophers disagree about is which things are really morally significant. A more general, meta-ethical in the jargon, question that philosophers also disagree about is what does it mean for something to be morally significant anyway? Next week we're going to talk about an even more general question that, you guessed it, is also a question that philosophers disagree about. Moral significance is just one variety of meaning in our lives. How Clyde's New York Knicks fair in the upcoming NBA season may not be morally significant, but it's still a meaningful part of my life. Or is it? What does it mean for there to be meaning in life? Is it possible that our lives are utterly meaningless? Or at least that there's an absurd gulf between the meaning actually present in our lives, on the one hand, and the meaning we want to get out of our lives, on the other hand? It's particularly easy to get a sense of the absurdity of it all when you're a Knicks fan, spending your time watching modern-day Sisyphuses, dribbling the ball up the court, and then jogging back down the court, and then dribbling the ball up the court, and then jogging back down the court, and then dribbling back up the court, and then jogging back down the court, and then dribbling back up the court, and then jogging back down the court. That's what we'll talk about next time on episode 14 of Dialogues, Meditations, and Analysis.